welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafta, and today I'll be chatting with Tom Higgins, CEO and founder of GoldEye. GoldEye is the global market leader in trading systems integration. GoldEye wants to help brokers make more money, reduce risk, and differentiate in a very competitive market. Tom, how's it going? It's pretty good today. Hi. It's a lovely day today. It's beautifully sunny. It's a bit cold, but um, beautiful, beautiful day. Beautiful day at zero degrees. That's impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it was lovely. I went for a run this morning, and it just sort of woke me up for a you know a good day. I got so much on today. We're all um, interested in seeing what's happening in the uh, the U.S. election, and I think we that's going to go on for weeks and weeks before we find out what's actually happened. This is true. This is true. How has your last couple of weeks and months been? Well, it's been a as for everybody. It's been a very strange time, obviously, with the virus being at home, and now UK going mm-hmm. into full lockdown again tomorrow. Um, beginning of November so it's uh, it's going to be a little bit strange but um, I've got used to being at home um, we've got four children and we've got lots of animals we've got two cats two dogs seven chickens um, so it's it's been pretty busy uh, pretty busy I can I love the you. chickens so, yeah they're, they're fun actually they're quite nice actually so we get lots of eggs so we always have lovely fresh eggs for our breakfast Yum, yum, yum. Well, Tom, I want to hear about your journey. What led you to Bold Gold Eye? I want to hear about your entire career. Wow, I hope you've got a long time because it's a, it's a, it's an interesting journey, actually. And it's something that um, I never intended to do from the beginning, but it's something I always wanted to do, but I didn't mm-hmm. think I would be able to. I, I actually started my first business when I was 12. So I used to uh, 12. run a mobile Yeah. So I used to run a mobile disco where, with a friend, um, which we used to charge for. And he was a bit older. So he he by the time we got to four, I was 14, he was 17, so he could drive. So he drove the van around. And uh, we would do all of the local discos for uh, in all the village halls for all of our friends. Um, quite a number of people would go, and it became quite famous. It was called the, wow. Thunderbolt, the Thunderbolt Roadshow, and we used to use all the money to buy new records. So that's uh, looking back, that was my first business, actually, and I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and then, and then there was a bit of a gap before where I actually went into the real, you know, the real world and, and mm-hmm. worked for real people in a, in a normal job. Um, I never intended to go into finance at all, actually. And my my degree was electronic engineering with digital computing. Um, and then I, uh, I attended what was called the milk round then, which was uh, when you graduated, you you went into a big room full of employers. So this was in 1988, and um, you. They talked to you all and they tried to persuade you to join their company because there were so many jobs and not enough people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told them all I wasn't interested in finance. It was boring because it just I thought it was just just really yeah. dumb like going into a high street bank. But I ended up working for PA Consulting Group, who was the management consultancy. And the first bit of consultancy I had um, was at Life, the uh, Futures Exchange, the Financial Futures Exchange in London. And I've never done anything other than finance since then. So <laughs> I was completely wrong thinking that uh, finance <laughs> wasn't an interesting place to go. So I worked there, worked at a number of different companies, um, ended up at um, uh, going through sort of some quite big companies. So I worked at Reuters. Um, uh, after they they'd acquired a business I worked for called Multex, um, then mm-hmm. um, then my FX journey started. And I worked for ADM Investor Services, which is a a broker. It's quite a large U.S. grain um, producer, but they also do quite a lot of business in FX because they're such a large producer of grain. They need to 
they needed a lot of exposure. So they actually started an, uh, an FX business in the States. And then they started an equivalent one in the UK called ADM ISI. Um, and they wanted someone to come in and advise them on their technology. So um, I spent about um, um, six months working there, um, advising them on their technology, what they should do. I was like an interim CTO. And that was my first exposure to FX. And I found it absolutely fascinating. I'd never seen this, this product before. And it was really interesting because it was, uh, I, everything I'd done before that was exchange trading was, was very strictly controlled. Um, but being an OTC market, it was, there was just so much more scope, so much more opportunities to do different things. So that was really interesting. And so after that, then I, I went to um, ODL Securities, which was a rapidly growing um, FX retail broker. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I joined, there were about 35 people. And when I left, there were about 200 people. Um, wow. Eventually, it, it got bought by FXCM and everything got merged into the the, uh, the great FXCM empire. Uh, but that was, that was where I really found my feet in FX. And um and got a lot of experience in large-scale fx systems particularly retail um and and that's when i sort of met uh, metatrader and realized that this was um it was a platform that was incredibly popular with end traders because it was very functionally rich for end traders but it wasn't so popular with brokers because it didn't have the sort of risk management tools and the liquidity yeah. integration that that brokers needed and so um when i was there you know, we, we spent quite a long time trying to find a, a technology provider to help us connect it to back ends, risk management systems, mm -hmm. marketing systems, CRM, liquidity, and, and nothing really existed. There was one company I won't mention who eventually disappeared, but they, they, they produced such a poor product that we realized we needed to build some stuff ourselves. So, so I, I got a lot of experience in the business side of FX. Um, but also the technical side of FX. So, um, so when I left there in 2008, um, I, uh, which wasn't a particularly clever time to do to do that because the recession had just started with the um, the credit crisis. Uh, I, I realised, you know, I thought, well, what should I do? I, I need to start. A, a, I want to do something because there weren't any jobs in the market um, at all. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll just do something using the skills that I've got until I can find a real job. So that was something in FX. And, uh, and luckily, I've never found a real job. So that's that's the sort of story to how I started GoldEye. The beauty of GoldEye. Wow. And starting in 2008, that in itself must have been a challenge. You've gone through ups and downs in the market. How did you get through it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been 12 years. So um, you when you start, you expect you don't really know what to expect, to be honest. You don't really know how anything works. The, the first things I remember I was worried about was how do I do sort of PAYE and VAT for staff, mm -hmm. really, really dull, mundane, ordinary things that you that are easy to do because an accountant does it for you. Um, but actually, what I should have been more concerned about is is looking at long long term strategic planning and and managing and monitoring exactly how the markets perform. And um you sort of once you start getting some success at the beginning, because we were very successful for the first sort of five years and it was just 100 percent growth every year. You get a bit complacent and you assume it's always going to be like that. And it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And um, and you get you don't really pay an awful lot of attention to costs. Um, you employ as many people as you can get hold of. You spend as much as you can because you've got lots of revenue coming in. It's growing. But in any business, whatever it is there are cycles um, and it's nothing to do with how good you are. 
Um, there are cycles in how much people want to buy, what are how, what the target market's like, mm -hmm. what the regulations are doing, all sorts of external factors that that you really haven't got your eye on. So a, a business survives because it has these cycles and it gets good at, um, at working out what to do before the down bit of the cycle happens. So 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 how do you how do you manage through ups and downs of the market? Well, you need to make sure that you don't realize that you're at the bottom of the market when it's at the bottom. So you need to Interesting. look at trends to see actually you're making good money, but actually it's decreasing ever so slightly each month. And if you see that going on for six months, um, you don't sit there and think, oh, well, it's probably going to turn. It's all fine. No, because it's not. It's probably going to go down further and then you're going to have a, a, you know, you'll get the trough, but you don't know how deep the trough will be. So it's you need to make sure that you're you're paying attention to these forward looking indicators as early as you can and not be complacent. Have a really good handle on your cash situation so that um, so that you, you know, you've got enough cash to survive and you've got enough cash to grow and you're not overspending. Um, and um, and that, so that's sort of, you know, that's the sort of nuts and bolts of how you how you cope through the ups and downs. What you do about it. So say let's if we take the um, the uh, retail FX market that has had quite a big downturn since the regulations changed to reduce the um, the leverage um, in the UK. It was that uh, you could go to 100 to one and it's now 30 to one. The, the um, Australia and the ASIC have just done exactly the same thing, um, yeah. which was predicted. Um, the Aussies didn't think it was going to happen. We did because we know what regulators are like. You know, one regulator doesn't want to be behind the other regulators because mm -hmm. they're seen as weak. So, so they've just done the same thing, and it will have a huge impact there too. And it reduces trading volumes. So, if your core market um, is under pressure by something like that, some external force, um, then the target market that you can sell to is shrinking. And so you you can do better marketing, you can do better selling, you can do something with your price, you can improve your product. But fundamentally, you're always going to have a struggle to to get growth in a market where the target market is not big enough. Uh, yeah. So uh, as early as you, as you can, you've got to actually recognise that and think, OK, so if the target market is not um, is not big enough, what am I going to do? So I've either got to sell other things to these people that I already sell stuff to. Um, which you can do. So if there's other products that they could buy to give you some, some more revenue, that's great. Or you can take your existing products and you can say, who else can I sell them to? I might need to mm -hmm. modify them or adapt them. But who else can I sell them to to be able to generate some revenue? Or you can do something brave, stroke, foolish, I think probably more on the foolish side, where you say, I'm going to take a new market and a new product mm -hmm. and I'm going, to, I'm going to try and work out um, how I can build something completely new that I don't know and sell to people that I don't know. That's why that's a really dangerous area because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so many unknowns and you can burn an awful lot of time building something that either nobody wants or doesn't really work or or or, or it works at the time, but then things change by the time you've finished it. So, Yeah. Tom, you've pivoted your business a couple times. How did you know when to pivot and what process did you go through to make sure it was a success? Well, pivoting is, um, I think it was sort of made famous in the, uh, the the comedy Silicon Valley where they pivot all mm -hmm. the time into other things. And that always makes me laugh because it's quite a long way from uh, from reality Silicon Valley, but it's very amusing. And in fact, the people in it are very, they are, quite real. <laughs> they are much more like uh, more sort of like the sort of people we employ. Um, but um, pivoting, as I say, we were talking earlier about moving from 
just moving one step at a time. So either yeah. taking your existing products and selling them to someone else or uh, making a new product that you're going to sell to the existing customers. So when you start seeing that um, the business flattening out in your or going down at all in your core market and it's doing it consistently, it's not just doing it for one month, it's doing it for two, three, four, five, six months. That's when you need to think, OK, um, I'm going to diversify. So pivoting strictly means you stop doing what you're doing completely and do something different. Um, I, I don't recommend that because you then don't have the revenue base to to give you the cash to be able to build this new area. So a pivot can be a diversification where you do something else and then your initial idea gradually withers and mm -hmm. dies. So it's a slow pivot. A quick pivot where you completely change is, um, is unusual. The only company I know that's done that, run by a friend of mine, he had a very successful gaming business and he decided to completely stop building games for, I think they were for, for um, consoles, and move entirely to virtual reality games. So he totally stopped everything he was doing, raised some money, um, and spent five years building um, the best virtual reality platform. Wow. Nearly went bust quite a few times in there. Really? It's been a real headache. He's now incredibly successful, and the new Oculus Rift carries his games, the Sony ones carry his games. They, they all carry his games because they're so good. He took a massive gamble going in early, and it's paid risk off. Risk and reward. Yeah, but it was major risk, and I don't know how he slept at night because he, he has a lot of debt, um, so there's a lot of funding involved. It's worked out and it was the right thing to do. But um, I, yeah, I'm I'm not sure I'd be brave enough to do that. So how do you pivot? You diversify. So pick another area that you think you can work in. So uh, an example of somewhere we, we've done that is cryptos. So we took our existing product, the FX CFD market, and we thought, where is another market that uses the same type of technology, but it's slightly different? Um, and the same type of customer base, but again, slightly more extended so that it's some different people involved, which extends the target market, which is always what you want to do, get as big a target market as possible with as few competitors in it. Um, and then we built the crypto switch from our matrix product. So we took that existing system. We didn't copy it. We just enhanced matrix so that it could talk to the crypto venues. So we then have a single code base that addresses FX CFDs and the crypto market. We do use a different name for it in the crypto world because we want to identify it as a crypto product, which is why we trademark crypto switch. So that's going in parallel with all our FX and CFD business, and it's it's going well that now. Cryptos has had an up and down time over the last since it started, to be honest, and since the the big spike when it got to twenty thousand dollars a few years ago and then dropped off again, it, it then a lot of people got scared in the market. But now it's going up to nearly fourteen thousand dollars again. People are very interested. There's a lot more. There's a lot more substance behind the market this time than there was before. It was very hollow before. It was just people reading the sun and buying Bitcoin because the sun told them to. There's a lot more behind it now. There's a lot of institutional yeah. play, a lot of institutional liquidity, and we're now providing technology to big crypto liquidity providers in Japan initially, actually. Um, and we've got a few others um, outside of Japan now, but Japan seems to be the biggest growth area where we, we provide crypto liquidity from multiple institutions um, to allow them to get the absolute best price with a very good depth of market. So that's an example of, uh, of pivoting. Fascinating. When pivoting or even when starting a business from scratch, there are so many factors that contribute to success. How do you personally validate a good business idea? First thing you've got to think is, will anybody buy it? 
Um, so if you could make, wave a magic wand and this thing would exist in front of you, would anybody buy it? Um, mm -hmm. So if the answer is absolutely um, there is demand for this, then you think, well, why has nobody else done it? Is there a reason that no one else has done this? Uh, or is it just that no one else thought about it, which is unusual. Most things have been thought of in some way or other. Is there a patent to stop you doing it so that, you know, if you did do it, you got to pay someone a ton of money for licensing the patent? Um, and uh, is it if it does exist, um, then are, is it a very competitive space? So are there lots of other people providing this at a, a price that you couldn't do it at? So if, if you validated those ideas and you think you know, to yourself initially, so yes, if I could produce this thing in a, you know, in a reasonable period, time period, um, would people buy it? And if the answer is yes, and it's not too competitive, so you're not going to fight. Because if you produce something that's really good and better than competitors can do, the first thing they're going to do is they're just going to modify their product to compete with you. Yeah. Uh, and they can do that much quicker than you can build an entire new product. So you've got to be a bit careful that that's not going to happen. And uh, we have seen that happen in the uh, in the FX retail space because MetaTrader is the dominant product in there. Mm -hmm. And there was um, another product that was built to compete with it called Tradable, which is very nice. And it had an app market, an app store in it that MetaTrader didn't have. Um they hadn't got any patenting or anything on it, and so all most oh, no. quotes did is just build an app market in there because they product. have funding, they have market share. Exactly, they have a massive market share. They got ninety percent of the market with MetaTrader Four and MetaTrader Five now. Um, so it, it just made sense to um, uh, to to add their um, the the app store to to MetaTrader, and then suddenly you know they the um, tradable no longer had a market, and so tradable disappeared. So, yeah, you've got to be careful on that one. Um, next thing you've got to do is so if, if it's um, if you can sell it at the right price. So look at the price you're going to be able to get for it. Um, is it going to be able to make you enough money? So if it's something that's going to generate enough money for the cost it's going to take to deliver it. OK, that's good. Um, how big is the target market? We've talked about target market a lot. It's really, really important. The first thing investors always do when they talk to you is they say, how big is the target market? Um, yeah. So if it's the target market is nice and big, then you've got a lot of scope to play in there. If the target market is tiny. Um, now, if, if it's tiny, but no one else produces that product, you're going to get all of that because it's in a monopoly. So, But target mm -hmm. market is really, really key. So if that's the case, so now you've validated in your own mind that it's the right product, it's the right price, there's not too much competition in there. Go to the industry and talk to everybody that you know and, and say to them you want them to be completely honest and you don't you won't take any offense if they say it's a stupid idea. And just test it out with them and say, if I could produce this at this price and it did this, would you buy it honestly or, or would you yeah. would you have problems? Because if you if I produced a product that would can that would make laser printers better than HP and I went to a big corporate, they're gonna go, Well, I don't know who you are. I don't yeah. know you're not going to go bust. I don't know how good quality your stuff is because you've only just started. So building a reputation, if you just started from nothing, is key too, because you might have the best thing in the world, but no one will buy it because they don't know who you are. You've got you've got no longevity. So sort of time in the market is good. So test and test and test the ideas. If that looks good, then, then I would go to build a, um, if you can, if it's a software product, then build the actual minimum pilot you can possibly do so not not a real application, just something that looks like the right sort of thing. So you can then test it out and show people because it's quite difficult for people to understand an idea when you just talk to them. They sort of 
get it a bit. But if you can build something you can show Something them. you can touch, something exactly. you can see with your eyes, yeah. Yeah, so if they can see it and they can poke it and they can put things in it. And it also does, it's a strange one, actually. I've seen so many demo systems where the numbers are completely wrong. So they've taken data from years ago. And the first thing when someone looks at it is they, they say, oh, those prices are wrong. I say, yeah, don't worry about mm. that. It's just a demo. But they do worry about it. That's all they think about is those prices are wrong. Those prices are wrong. It's like, yeah, but that's not what you should be looking at. So get the data so that it's looking accurate because otherwise it'll it'll throw people off and they won't really pay attention. So if you build a pilot and it looks like it's okay, then you've got to throw that away and build a proper system because building um, a piece of software, for example, to sell to other people is not the same as throwing together an idea that's a pilot. Um, something that is a full product and is supported and tested and scalable and deployable and manageable and uh, you know, fully usable and and, perf and performant that so goes fast enough uh, is a very different thing. So you've got to do a lot of design and you've got to sort of build all that sort of stuff. So that's when you've got to sort of think about, have I got the resources to do that? Do I need to outsource this software? Because if software is not your business, but you've got a really good software idea, there's plenty of places yeah. um, where you can um, outsource software development. You've got to have a really good control on it, though, because if you just send it off to, you, you know, there's websites where you go off to other to other countries, um, and you know, if you go to India, for example, you can. There's websites where you can put an idea out there, and someone will build your application for five hundred pounds. Doesn't mean it's going to be right. It doesn't mean it's mm -hmm, going to work. Mm -hmm. You've got almost no proof at all that it's going to be a scalable product that you can sell. Also, it, it, you, you may well not actually own the IP rights of it. And if you do, it's almost certainly going to get copied if it's any good because someone else wrote it that you can't see in, and control. So work out how you're going to build a thing. Um, have you got enough money to do it? Do you need to go for funding? Um, which is another discussion, actually, funding. That's a whole sort of thing because as, as yeah. you... As you, as you know, we um, we are non-funded, so we are completely bootstrapped and, and funded by me. Has that been the plan since day one? Yeah, it was my decision at the beginning because I'd been involved a number of different times with investments, not for investing in, in my ideas, but, but where I was working for companies, they wanted to invest in other people. And so I'd been on the other side of it and seen it quite a lot. And, and I really wanted to have that control and that ability to be able to flex around and do different things and pivot, as we've talked about, and diversify and not worry about what's happening in the next few months, you know, ch changing direction and taking a hit on revenue if we want to, because it's a longer term thing. So I decided not to do that. Um, and gradually, after a few years of, of not doing that, you sort of get terribly hooked on on the control that you've got and being able to do what you want. We did look at external funding. Um, and the reason we didn't go down that route was investment has that they generally have the same sort of criterion that they want. They want a very high multiple return in a mm -hmm. fairly short period of time so that, you know, they want a five to 10 times exit in three years. So um, if you if you're not absolutely certain you're going to do that, you, you're going to achieve that and you, you shouldn't go there. Um, they want their investors so when a vc fund comes to you or a pe fund comes to you it's not their money normally it's investors who put the money in the investors want to want a, a quite a certain amount of growth yeah um so they don't want to have an incredibly volatile market they don't want to have an unpredictable market they want something that's pretty much going to give them what what they think they're going to get um and if your market is something like the retail market where the regulators can come in and suddenly slash the 
the market and reduce the leverage and reduce the amount of trading, suddenly revenues can go down and you need to pivot and do things differently. Investors hate that sort of thing because that's not what they bought into. So you have to really be honest with investors. And we had a comment, uh, I often get called by investors and I always talk to them because it's always interesting because you, you never know what's going to happen. Exactly. I always talk to them and I always explain that our market, I don't believe, is investable because um, of the volatility in it, the unpredictability in it. Um, so, And that's not what most investors want. And they go, well, that's, yes, the guy yesterday said, well, thank you so much for um, explaining how the market works and being honest, because he said so many people will yeah. not tell the truth. They'll get down the line um, investment and then people will start realizing when they do their due diligence that actually this is not really a very investable yeah. market and it's wasted everybody's time so if you start right up front this is how it is this is how this market works it's a high churn market just because of the nature of it um it's quite variable it's quite volatile it's an exciting roller coaster ride and you need to be able to jump and duck and dive and pivot and diversify as much as you can but if investors don't want that level of risk and very few do um then it's not an investable market and you need to do it in a different way. You could go for um, other sorts of funding, you know, crowdfunding or VCs where where they, they, they know that most of the businesses they're going to invest in are going to fail. If if they are going for something like that, then they're expecting a you know a hundred times multiple, an enormous multiple of because so many of their businesses would fail. They need some that will succeed at massive levels. You will end up giving away an awful lot of equity, which nobody wants to do. Um, so it gives you. So I didn't do that, and I'm not intending to do to do that. Um, some point, somebody might want to acquire us. If you're going to be fully acquired, that's a different game because they bought yeah. you. You know, they're going to buy you to put you in either into another business to add some uh, some functionality to that business. Or they, there's a space that they haven't got, and they want to, you know, they want to, they want to have that in their business. Um, or they're a competitor, and they want to take you out. You know, sometimes that happens too. So it's it's exactly. quite, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting on that side of things. Tom, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's always a delight chatting with you. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you? So if you look on LinkedIn under Tom Higgins, or you can find the Gold Eye as a, as a company on LinkedIn, you can find us on there or our website, goldeye.com. You will see uh, everything that we do and have a chat. And if you reach out and try and connect to me on LinkedIn, I will happily connect to you and talk back to you and we can have a chat. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely talking to you. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.